Aloha. Welcome to the Woman on Fire podcast. We've got two very fired up women here with you today. Myself, Daniela, and Jamie, as usual. And we have no special guests today, but we have a fun topic to talk about. Um, it's all the rave. If you're having a baby, most people ask you, do you have a birth plan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this will be the birth plan episode this is the birth plan episode but why do we call it a plan what happens with plans mm-hmm. they change, <laughs> change. so yeah so mine actually i give a generalized list that we're gonna kind of walk through today and talk about um why people choose certain things, why people don't, and even what to expect, because some of these things folks don't even know that are um, offered. And it and it it can translate depending on where you live or what you choose as your care um, system. Uh, some of these things are really cross-platform, um, whether you're choosing a home birth or you're choosing to work in the hospital. Um, and depending on where you live, what's offered in those locations by those service providers. So, um, yeah, so I like to call mine preferences, birth preferences. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And we can talk about why that distinction in words even matters because it makes a big difference. Um, yeah, words matter. <laughs> they do. They really do. And because people do sometimes get caught up in the birth plan and that sometimes can um, lead to like really confusing situations for people when it it doesn't go according to plan or it's misleading to be like oh yeah I'm gonna plan it out just like I plan out my calendar my schedule and my week and day to day like that's not what it means at all it's not that kind of plan um, because you simply can't do that (laughs) unless you're like scheduling a c-section and that's a different story um but the whole thing with the birth have things you prefer (laughs) right just because you're scheduling something like that doesn't mean you're not allowed to have preferences or boundaries or certain wishes respected at all um you certainly can and should um but but yeah sometimes people are like oh well you know things just didn't go according to plan and then people gotta be like well you know at least you got a healthy baby so don't worry about the plan whatever you know um but it's not about making a plan of like this is what the trajectory of my birth will look like it's more so um the preferences right i think that's the value of it is understanding what will be offered what will be available what are your options and where do you stand with it what are your choices what do you want to accept and not yeah and what is routine from the place that you're receiving your services or from the person you're receiving your services from. Um, Because a lot of things aren't really discussed or disclosed ahead of time, um, or if they are, or what if it's someone else who's attending you during that time. Um, It's a way of communicating and and, and really actually applying mind. Like, what do you want it to look like? What do you prefer? Um, so that way, when you're in the throes of bringing your baby in, you don't have to go to that frontal cortex and have to necessarily explain, um, or 
be explained to. You've already have an idea of what's coming and what your preferred methods of, of um, facing that question or that concern. Um, you've already applied some mind to it. So it's not, you can, you can just carry on. Um, yeah, right. It's a way for the woman who's actually going to give birth to get clear on where she stands with all these things. Uh, and then it's a way for her birth team, the partner, the mom, the doula, whoever's going to be with her that she's bringing to the hospital, if that's where she's going to be, for them to be really clear on where that woman stands and what are her values and um, decisions that she really wants respected and help in advocating for those things to be respected. Um, and I think maybe in a, almost in a smaller almost in a smaller part, it's for the actual hospital staff, even though that's kind of what people intend it to be, right? You write your birth plan to give to the hospital staff. And some people even get them notarized. I mean, I haven't seen that. I've heard people talking about that in like the national circles. People get them notarized because they're like, no, if it's a legit legal document, like they have to pay attention to that and honor my wishes. Like that's how much people try to get in prepared with that thing. Cause they're so worried that their wishes are not going to be respected. Which is so sad. So sad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's a reality often too. Well, then, yeah, totally. Yeah. Hopefully um, your has good negotiating skills. Yeah. Which, which is why I say, I think it's maybe almost more important for like the birth team that you bring to the hospital to be really familiar with the birth plan and rely on them to protect it instead of thinking like, I gave the doctor my birth plan, but they didn't respect it. Like that's, um, some doctors might, some might be really great with that, but most, you know, like they kind of do their thing. And then there's different OBs, maybe you're there and one was paying attention to it and then they change shift. And the next one, like you never met them. They don't know, they're busy with 20 other people. Like it's hard for them to remember what your preferences were when it comes down to your baby coming out. And then you're like, wait, no, I don't want that. And they're like, oh, oh. <laughs> right. So well, you got to remind them. Yeah, it's also good talking points to even have with your obstetrical team or your midwife team to, to have those conversations, not just among you and your partner or you and yourself or whatnot, you know, but to find out where their push pull is as well. So having the opportunity to talk about it ahead of time, um, then you get an idea of how they navigate or manage, I hate those words, that word, <laughs> manage, but how they you know, oversee the process and what they think their role is or what is standard of care for them, for their, their, the place they practice, the, their um, belief systems in right. a lot of ways. And if you have these conversations early on, because a lot of people don't make birth plans till the end, but if you have them early on, you might get some red flags right away that maybe you should choose a different care provider if they're not comfortable with some of these things on the list. And so the list that I have is kind of a list of just typical interventions that folks can expect that, um, that they that are not disclosed ahead of time or that it's not really, people don't even know it's an option. They think that this is just what you do you know yeah well I think that's a really great distinction you just made so thank you for that of 
<clears throat> having the conversation about your birth preferences with your provider throughout your pregnancy uh, instead of just like making it on your own and then showing up with it. And that's like, that's when it, I mean, that could make it a little harder for the people attending you to know what your preferences are. But if you've been talking about it ahead of time and you know, your provider is going to be available for you during your birth, right? So it's someone you have built a relationship with over time. You, they really know you. And like you said, you get to have these conversations to see where they stand on certain things um, and interventions and options and what's routine for them. So yes, talk about it throughout the pregnancy with the provider. Yeah. All right. Shall we dive into your, your list? Yeah, we can dive right in and, and we will kind of, we're going to elaborate on a few things that's on the list as well, but also to keep in mind, like if you're having inductions or if you have an actual medical issue, um, some of these things may look a little different. So we'll try to, um, elaborate on some of those things as well. Oh, oh, Jamie, hold on. Um, for our listeners, this is not medical advice. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the internet. It's yeah. just stuff people talk about and forums, but you know, this is all <laughs> based on experience and not, yeah. Exactly. It's just it's stuff you can <laughs> It is not. It's <laughs> just talking about things, options, um, and experiences we've seen. It's so weird. It's yeah. And so none of this is going to be blanket statements. It's just like, these are different things that are relevant and then you can figure out how they apply or don't to you. And we just hope it sparks your mind to think well, about these even things. know that this happens. Yeah. That this still happens. Why does this still happen? Mm -hmm. How do you make change? You don't make change by just continually blindly going in and doing the same thing over and over. So, mm. if, if, you know, there's some of these practices that are routine that are actually outdated. And so anyway, we'll dive in and we'll, we'll get to know this birth preferences list. So, exactly. um, I also, again, just to sort of preface, I've heard different angles of like making it really like, don't have a list of no's. See, that's two double negatives. Don't know, <laughs> but, um, but it's really however you want. Some people want to be more aggressive of like, this is, this is absolutely not, you know, I'm, I'm not into this. Other people talk about sort of fluffing it up and making it so it's like, no, we're a team. And, you know, everybody's got to find what they feel right in sharing this information. So I'm just going to read it how it is. Um, and, and we can kind of go from there. So, so usually, I mean, I'm often working with people who are choosing a natural birth. Um, they're not interested in um, having epidurals or things like that. Um, maybe they've entertained the idea. They haven't totally thrown it out the window, but that's not the goal. So, so the, the, the first thing on here is, is, you know, I'd like to have a natural childbirth. Please do not offer drugs or other interventions. And that's, um, that's sort of the, the, the first line because intervention is different for everybody. Um, and so then the next thing is, you know, what, what can protect that space of not wanting to offer drugs? Well, please do not ask me what my pain level is during labor. <laughs> um, almost seems like common sense that somebody should not, I mean, obviously I, I always laugh about this because the, 
someone comes in and asks you, and especially if you're working with residents or even sometimes partners of like, wow, that, that one looked really painful, mm. you know, as a wave or be like, wow, you know, oh, you look like you're really uncomfortable or, you know, just not even really realizing that they're undermining the, the process just by saying something that is that like, yes, of course, like when I am having my transitional waves um, and they're coming back to back and in my brain, I'm thinking, I don't want to do this anymore, mm-hmm. no matter where you're at home or hospital. And then someone asks you, what your pain level is like it's a freaking million right now yeah it's laughable a little bit and someone can be an early laborer and say they're at a 10 like I've been with people like that like even from the beginning it is too overwhelming so like what help is it to know that like what number they want to attribute to it and someone might have a high pain tolerance and it's not till the very end where they're like oh yeah maybe this is a little intense we know some people like that so what does that matter but, but yeah, I do tell people often, like, imagine, I mean, there's some people where childbirth, they say is not painful for them. And that's great. And that's totally a reality. Um, and it's also not the majority. Some folks really do say like, nope, that's the right word. It is painful um, <laughs> with a great divine purpose. But what I'm trying to get to is that, you know, so you are in labor. It's the most intense, challenging, profound and perhaps even painful experience of your life and here's someone going like hey like I got something that'll make you feel better like like here like I got something that I can help you like I got this here just take this it's easy like like how tempting is that like of course you're wanted, gonna want to take that even if you have spent so much planning saying I'm not gonna do that but in the heat of the moment you're like yeah get me the freak out of here this is too much right so and it's not long labor yeah. or not feeling safe. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's not that or the hospital support. Right. Not feeling supported for sure. And it's not that the hospital folks are like bad people for pushing drugs on people. So it's, that's just their training. And that's generally what they believe. It's how they know how to support people. That's what they know to do. And it's great that that's an option. And everyone knows that you don't need the constant reminders. You know, it's an option. <laughs> and that's the, that's why that's on there is please don't ask me what my pain level is during labor because yeah. it's going to be a freaking million. So exactly. maybe it's not, but like it's, it's kind of, you know, again, maybe it's not, but at the same time, we anticipate that most people will have some pretty uncomfortable sensations while they're bringing their baby out. So, yeah. So the next thing on there is because we're not expectant to be being offered drugs um, and during labor, um, again, if you're having an induction, it's different. So we can, we can sort of diverge at some point around that. But the next thing on the list is that I expect that I will be allowed to eat and drink as I wish. Um, and that is because the body can't run on empty. And um, so, if you are untethered and have no um, medications in your body, then there should be, this shouldn't even be on the list, honestly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, that is pretty outdated, but they still do it, right? Especially like 
especially when you're on epidural, that's when that tends to be a harder, firm thing of like, you can't eat because you might need surgery. And if you do, then you might puke and choke and right, breathe in your puke. Um, But that was based on when the whole anesthesia thing wasn't as a refined art as it is now. Like it's improved so much. So that aspiration thing doesn't happen as often as it used to but then they're still saying this so you can go look up the evidence like that stuff is outdated but they're still pretty hard about that but I will share very anonymously one nurse it was an epidural in place at this birth and I you know just asked like so can she eat something (laughs) um and she's like the nurse goes well she's on an epidural so the hospital policy is no um she can't eat anything but i've done my own research and i know that's not evidence-based and she is an adult and she can make her own decisions and if she finds a soda cracker or something and i don't see it then it's not a problem (laughs) yes yes I've, i've seen these i've seen these things too um where um yeah, that people say, well, we can't not make you or um, I've definitely seen women just do it. And then people come in and then they're like, oh, well, I was hungry. Sorry, <laughs> like yeah. I've been here for 14 hours. Yeah, so- and I've been on the flip side of it where, right. Yeah, this woman was drinking water and then the nurse walks in and she gave her so much shit for drinking water because oh, yeah. she was on the epidural. She made her feel so bad about it. Like, oh man. Ice chips only. Ice chips only. Yeah, it's gonna turn into water anyways. <laughs> oh, I've had I've had super strict ones that are like, no, 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 not too much. Oh yeah. wow. So yeah, so that is on there because depending on who your provider is, who you're who's showing up for you whether it's their job because they have to be there because they want to be there (laughs) and um that's why that's on there because people would think that doesn't that seem outdated you're running a marathon um how can you really survive on broth i mean and yeah you can you can but is that really what's healthy and good and wise in the bigger perspective and optimizing Um, your chances for your goal your goal, which might only just being having a vaginal birth, you know, versus cesarean section. But, um, but a lot, again, this is, I, I lean towards supporting folks who are really um, pretty motivated and, and, and deterred, like, or not deter, like determined to, to have a natural birth. So, um, so that's why that's on there. Um, the next thing on the list is that I understand that lab, labor can take a long time. Um, and in so long as baby and I are showing no signs of distress, I'm not interested in hormones to speed up the labor. Now, this is a tricky one because if you're there being induced, then it's more of a slow, steady process of introducing things as opposed to avoiding things. And so this is on here because you could have, you could be in booming labor at home or in booming labor. Yeah. At home. And you either then transfer into the hospital and things slow down because of 
just that alone is an intervention is changing location into a bright light um lots of bustling and energy and strangers and demands on your attention it can also change even at home if you're planning a home birth and depending on who shows up whether it's your mom or the photographer or your doula or person coming to pick up the dogs or whatever those those things um can slow things down now at home they're not going to typically offer hormones to speed up labor though herbs may be suggested depending on what's going on so um you know so long as things are moving along um or, or that the thing that the mom and the baby are doing okay, then there really is no need. And in fact, I feel like this comes into place, of course, mostly in the hospital. And of course, if you think it's time to go in and then you're three centimeters um, and they're like, well, you're three centimeters, so you're in labor. And then seven hours labor later, you're still three centimeters. Um, you're not in, you're actually not in labor. You may have been three centimeters for the past week, you know, since your last dilation check, which happens pretty routinely in your prenatal visits, um, which that's a whole nother list of preferences that is um, leading up to this whole thing. Um, so what often happens is women are really convinced that this is labor and that I wanna stay. And so now I've been here for 10 hours and I just wanna get it over with is sort of either women are kind of convinced of that or they think that that's what needs to happen. And especially because that's often the language that's coming from, from the care providers. It's like, well, you know, you're in labor, but you're kind of just putzing along, you know, we can make this happen. So you're, you can be on the other side of it. Um, or a lot of women will plateau for a little while at the very beginnings of transition, or they might plateau um, for a little while just before the push because those big shifts sometimes take a little spiritual reckoning <laughs> before you're ready to like go through that physical realm. And, and you don't need things, what, what's the rush? We've talked about this in past podcasts, like, if everything's fine and you're just tired and then your contractions space out to every 10 minutes apart, like that's with purpose. That's so you can rest and know you're not gonna get a solid eight hours of sleep, but when you're 36 weeks pregnant, you're not getting that anyways. So <laughs> you should have been, you know, like paying attention to that. Again, leading up to the fact that you're getting ready for this marathon and so that irregular sleep and all that stuff is preparing you for this journey to your baby and and the weeks to follow the weeks and months to follow would yeah, you like to on that totally i want to throw a little tidbit out there for people you know to have some perspective if you find yourself in a situation of like is this a long birth is this taking too long or something um so there has been a shift in defining active labor as starting at six centimeters and not what it used to be, which was four, if I'm remembering right. So that's a whole two different centimeters of difference, um, which can really make a, it, it, it makes a difference when you're counting time. If you feel like you're on the clock, it's like, well, how long have you actually been in active labor? Now, I'm not saying that that, that is 
even the hard and fast rule of like, yep, that is definitely active labor. I'm not saying that if you are five centimeters or four centimeters that you're not working um, and that those contractions that you're feeling aren't like powerful and intense and that it's not hard work because it very much so can be and likely is. Um, But it's in your favor that the hospitals aren't, I mean, here's the thing, I'm not sure who's up to date in acknowledging that shift, right? Because for a long time, it was like, nope, active labor starts at four centimeters. For now, it's six. So you've got all this time. Anything before six centimeters is early labor, which again is in your favor. So the hospital staff can be like, well, you've been in labor for this long. Like, well, have I though? So you can- Well, and I just had a woman who for two weeks walked around at six centimeters, not in labor. Oh, and, and right, then there's that. And well, well, how many a, times? And what, so if you never check, you never even know that there's exactly. six centimeters. So that routine checking ahead of time, and like getting in their head of like, oh, well, this baby is, I'm just going to cough it out at some point because I'm just slowly dilating over time, you know, but then they could have still a long active labor from that seven, that transition, or they could have a short one. You know? Exactly. Right. It could go either way. And let's see, there's a point I wanted to make about being inactive. Oh, oh, right. So this whole notion of like how long is labor supposed to be is largely still based on something called the Friedman's curve, which was created in like the 1800s. No, I'm just joking. It's not that far long ago, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> and I don't remember the date, but it, the point is like, we need a new curve or get rid of the curve altogether. Um, we need because- to recognize that everyone has their own curve. <laughs> Exactly. Acknowledgement of that uniqueness. But we know that standardized medicine doesn't usually uh, recognize uniqueness, right? That's the whole point of standardizing. Uh, (laughs) um, Right. But the Friedman's curve thing, so some reasons where it's just flawed and not applicable, um, not just because it's old, but so one, it included multips um, along with primates. So people that have had multiple babies were included in this along with people that were having their first babies. And if you don't know this, first babies generally tend to take longer than the second, third, or more babies, right? Within, with the same mother, right? So her first birth could have been like 32 hours. And then the second one was like two hours. Okay, that's a little extreme. I've seen that, but you know, it, they tend to be shorter, not always. Or 12, it's half. Exactly, so. About half or less. <laughs> yeah, exactly, so two, find an average of labor length, including a group of multips, and then saying that that's going to be the same for a primate, well, it's inaccurate and it's setting up people for, you know, failure or pressure of interventions, which is what's been going on. So that's just important to understand. Didn't take into account the position of the baby. Yep. Yep. Um, or any of those other things. I mean, and I'm not talking breach, I'm talking about OP or asynclitic or things like that, because that will definitely throw the curve. Or what that woman's psychological situation is coming into that space, that will throw the curve. Right, yeah. So there's some other things. I think they included people with epidurals. It it just didn't really fully focus on just physiological birth and it didn't distinguish multips and primates. It's just don't trip about the time 
you know, focus more so on it, your unique journey with your unique baby and sure check in like how are baby's vitals how are your vitals how are you feeling what's your intuition saying you know if you guys are feeling good like you you know you might be tired but you guys are solid then what's the rush other than we live in a busy rushed modern life culture right well and the goal is to always like get to the next thing get to the next thing but like there's always that's gonna be life there's you're always gonna be getting to the next thing so you may as well enjoy where you're at even if you're not super enjoying it like (laughs) knowing even that that place that you are at that moment is a means to to that leveling up or whatever it is that we however you want to describe it but that step so you're not a machine that just needs to produce in this industrial age right it's like just produce the the product the product is the baby just produce like no it's so much more than that so let it be more than that yeah well and then the flip side of that is if you are going in for an induction because (laughs) you got to hurry up because now you're 42 weeks or whatever the rationale sometimes there's more med like truly medically indicated issues like preeclampsia or whatnot that you know you need to it is time for the baby to come but again like arbitrary numbers versus um versus actual medical conditions and we'll kind of go into this little medically clinically necessary thing here soon too but um but even that that there's more natural methods to get inductions going and then just because you've chosen induction doesn't mean that you want every single thing in the induction world thrown at you either right so that slow nudging into labor and just because you're getting an induction doesn't mean then you also want someone to ask you all the time what your sensations are and what your pain level is because if they can't walk in and read your body language, you know, then maybe they need to get some CEUs. Um, and <laughs> do they have CEUs in that? Um, and then, you know, still just trying to keep you on that more natural path as opposed to then really trying to like funnel up. Oh, well, now you've said yes to one thing. So then funneling being like, okay, well then that obviously opens the door to you being this, this person, this hypothetical person being open to taking in more interventions because they've already caved to the induction, you know? So um, yeah, so there's that. So that's that little caveat of that piece that when you're writing your own birth plan, if you are needing to adjust because you're in a system that favors induction over waiting, um, or that you have a medical necessity to be in that situation to, to still be able to protect a little bit of that space. So this comes into play with the next one, of course, that it says no students, residents, or other onlookers, that it's an intimate and private experience for your family. Well, I can guarantee that the more strangers, the more rotating door of faces, the more people who are carrying anxiety into the space they're going to slow down your labor. (laughs) It's not a spectator sport. It's private. It's intimate. If you don't want to be asked what your pain level is, you definitely want to keep students out, early students. They are anxious. They're nervous. First-year students very typically come into the room um, with an air of 
anxiety or if your mother hasn't dealt with her stuff or your sister or whoever, maybe she should not be the one there. And it's hard to say no to your mom or your sister or your best friend, but if they haven't dealt with their own stuff and they're going to put it on you, you're going to feel it. It's even the same way. Like if the nurse has had a not so great shift, like you're going to feel what she brings in to the room. If she hasn't learned how to leave the baggage at the door. Um, so yes. You want I to think it's uh, something uh, important to remind anyone listening who might be pregnant. Um, okay. So when you're pregnant, right, there's that heightened sense of general awareness, right? You hear a lot of like the even your smell becomes incredibly heightened and you're sensitive to all these things with your senses. And that also translates to a heightened sense of general awareness, intuition, whatever you want to call it. Um, so if you find yourself being aware like that of people's energy in pregnancy, like that's going to be even more so in labor. Um, one of my teachers described like eventually, I think maybe her fourth labor or something, she finally invited her her mom to be part of her births because she had very intentionally not allowed that in the first pregnancies but she was like okay fine I'll let her be at that labor and it was fine but she she's like I could track where well she could track where her mother was in the house because her mom had so much fear she felt like she had a tracker on her mom like she knew exactly where her mom was because of the fear that she was emitting <laughs> um and, and, you know, she was able, she was finally at a place where she could like manage that and like leave that at the side and not let that fear take over her and interfere with her process. Um, but that's hard to do. Um, and other people's energy is something that you will pick up on. Um, and, and it can become your own if you don't keep it in check, right? And then it's your fear and then you're anxious um, and then you're not trusting yourself or the process or your baby um, if others around you aren't, right? So, so yeah, please know students, residents, or really just think about who do you think you can be comfortable or not around? Who can hold the space while you're uncomfortable and not try to steer no. you in their own personal agenda direction. Um, so the next thing on the list is um, something that's totally outdated and still routine to the process. <laughs> And that is um, not wanting a saline lock upon arrival to the hospital or even upon your midwives arrival to your home, depending on how they practice and what their preferences are. And to only give permission if clinically indicated. So this is a double-edged sword here. So the saline lock is um, leftover practice from when they used to give epinephrine. Um, in labor for blood clotting issues. And um, so there's a whole evidence-based birth podcast about how this is left over from the 50s and it just never fell out of fashion to routinely give a woman a saline lock upon arrival. And um, nowadays it's marketed or, or justified or um, coerced into practice because if suddenly the, bo the bottom dropped out, which is unlikely if you're not having interventions, then they could immediately get fluids into you, medications into you intravenously to save you and your baby's life. Is that, That's the, the way that it's sort of projected 
onto the public now of why it's there. But um, again, Rebecca Decker does these meta-analysis of these different um, situations through evidence-based birth, and there is no indication that it improves outcomes whatsoever. The whole, um, and so, so it's really um, important that we look at this and that collectively this becomes the, the social norm is to not ask for something that isn't evidence-based practice. Um, why are we just shoving needles into women just in case. I mean, the whole point of being in the hospital is just in case, like they have all the things, why do they have to all be actually set up? And it is, you know, basically that undermining of a woman's confidence and ability in her own body, because just in case, then we can, if your body fails, we can save you, you know, and, and that's um, that's the practice now, right? And so then that gentle undermining of a woman's ability to like trust her baby and her body. And I could say that like, okay, well, if it actually did improve outcomes, but the proof is out there that it, it doesn't. So why are we doing this? <laughs> and then the second piece of that is only if clinically indicated. And we spoke a little bit about this prior to starting our podcast because we talked for like an hour before we started again today. <laughs> so I'll let you go ahead and take over on that one. Yeah, right. The What you said, that gentle undermining is sometimes not so gentle. I mean, the actual action might seem gentle, but it's a profound seed of doubt that can be placed of like, oh, well, I'm going to need things on the outside to do this. Maybe I can't really do this myself from within. I need all these people on the outside and their technologies to do the things. And this is so dangerous. And it's very likely that it's all just going to go wrong. Um, I mean, I don't know. Some might say it's like wearing a seatbelt in a car, but I don't know, getting a needle in you, it's kind of different than just putting a seatbelt on. <laughs> well, and a seatbelt actually does improve outcomes. So, you know, that's one of the things like it, it's you're you if you get in a major accident, you're not going to fly out of your car, you know, um, right. but this doesn't have any backing that it supports the outcome and in, in having and in being better. Mm -hmm. And this is the significance of going into creating your birth preferences. It's the education piece for yourself so that you can feel confident in saying no to something if that's what you choose because you've done your homework. And, and then when they're like, no, but we need to because just in case this and you're, you've done your homework and you cannot be easily manipulated by the fear mongering of whatever they wanna bring forth, um, right? It's building up your confidence in education. Uh, so I love that about it. So right, clinically indicated, and sometimes you, it's equivocal to um, medically necessary, which is something that comes up all the time when people are creating these preferences and and plans. <laughs> oh, bless you to my partner in the background. Um, <laughs> he says sorry. Um, <laughs> um, medically necessary. I mean. It's, it, it sounds lovely. Like, of course, please don't do anything. But it's nice to know that people aren't going to do things 
unless it's medically necessary. And it's nice to know that like, yes, you're not just saying no at all costs. Like, no, there's a point where, where if it's necessary, of course, you'll do it. But folks, do you really think that the hospital staff is doing all these things because they don't think it's medically necessary? Like, no, they really trust and believe that what they're doing, all their routine things is what's best and ideal. They most will believe that a saline lock is in fact medically necessary just in case, right? Regardless if it's not evidence-based, blah, blah, blah. Medical, medically necessary, clinically indicated at the end of the day or in the heat of the moment just means the provider's opinion in that moment or their preferences, regardless yeah. of whether that's really what you need and evidence-based. Yeah, so, and that's the trouble with medically necessary or clinically indicated is that if you're choosing a medical paradigm, they're going to rationalize those things as medically necessary. They will find a reason where it is necessary. Because if you bleed out like a faucet, then they might have a hard time finding your vein. Right. I mean, that. I mean, that these makes- are the things that I have heard yeah. spoken to women when they're in booming labor about to push a baby out and they have to stay still to get the saline lock in in case they're suddenly now going to bleed out. But the reality is that EMT scoops a body up off the side of the road and they get an IV in them. Right. I mean, these are the pros. This is what they do is these kinds of interventions regularly. Like they will do it. It's the same thing with eating. You have this beautiful, amazing dinner and then you get in a car accident on the way home and you have to go under general anesthesia. Like you can't just not eat because you might need to go under general anesthesia randomly. Uh (laughs) Right. You like Like they have skills to prevent these issues or to step in if it really is medically necessary. Right. So in some ways it kind of comes down to you as the patient, as the mom, um, to decide when that line of medically necessary is. Um, and that's not how most people approach it, right? They think like, well, the doctor will tell me, but the whole point of the birth preferences is for you to decide where your boundaries are and not just leave it up to the practitioners because they just have a formula that they run everyone through. Right? Well, and you it want is to personalize. But what? It is, and it is an intervention. It is an intervention. It's one more intervention. Right. It might seem like a very subtle one, but it's the same as asking what your pain level is. Right. Um, it, the, the intervention starts right when you got in the car to leave your home and drive there. I mean, it interrupts things, right? You got to like pick things up, walk it, get in the car. Uh, and then you show up to this strange place. Maybe you visited it before, but still it's not home as in like, it's, it's a new place. And then they ask you all the forms that you got to fill out the questions. So you got to think about things. That's an Can intervention. Right. You're like trying to be social to like communicate with people and, you know, you get in th- the thinking brain. Um, which is calling and wanting to confirm that you are who you are on your ID. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and that's just, well, like you said earlier, sometimes people are like in booming labor and then they go through all that stuff and things kind of slow down. It just happens because 
I mean, I think we've all heard of animals of like, they were in labor, but then I showed up and they didn't labor until they like went into the closet, right? That's why the kitty cats go in the closet to have their babies, <laughs> right? Generally, the animals need their privacy. And if they're being watched, eh, things don't really happen. Or you hear of the researcher that was like watching their monkey in labor and just like waiting for them to go and have their babies. But then they finally leave for like lunch and then that's when the babies are born. <laughs> it's when they leave the animals alone, <laughs> not observed. Um, so I, there's some other examples in your list of medically necessary and I don't wanna jump around. So I think we'll come back to it because there's some good examples later on um, Great. to contextualize it. So yeah, you wanna take over the next one? Uh, I prefer intermittent monitoring or fetal monitoring. So that as opposed to continuous fetal monitoring, which is what you might've seen those pictures where it's like the double straps on the belly, right? Once monitoring contractions, when monitoring fetal heart tones and the straps just stay on forever, um, yeah. <laughs> right? So continuous um, or intermittent. So that's another thing where you can look at the evidence and you know, unfortunately, continuous fetal monitoring has not increased outcomes in as far as cerebral palsy for newborns. Um, what's the other one? Fetal hypoxia. Mm -hmm. So they so we have a higher C-section rate, but we don't have better outcomes based on continuous. We, right. We know the continuous monitoring does increase cesarean rates. So we've done that, um, but the babies aren't necessarily healthier. So they put out continuous fetal monitoring without having evidence for it in the first place um, that the, it would make things better. And then we keep doing it without the evidence that, actually with evidence that it doesn't make things better. Um, yet it's the standard in most places, what, um, especially if there's a risk factor, like you're over 41 weeks, I've seen, um, intermittent, fetal back, you have to have continuous monitoring in most hospitals, right? I don't know how it is in birth centers and things. We don't have a birth center in Hawaii, but um, again, it probably depends on where your birth center is and what the laws are. But any VBAC is continuous fetal monitoring in the state of Hawaii. Right. You'll get that if you get an epidural, they want continuous monitoring, even though they'll say, well, it <laughs> the drugs don't go to the baby or don't affect the baby. But then why do they want to do continuous monitoring on the baby then after an epidural? But they do. Um, well, they do because the woman's blood pressure changes. And, and that can affect the baby. Right. Yeah. So, so it affects the baby. <laughs> and can't feel the baby's movements so as well so not that they rely on that anyways she wouldn't be alerted to there being an issue necessarily because she's now disconnected so and even in hospital-based practices intermittent fetal monitoring often means 20 minutes per 60 minutes of continuous monitoring which often leads women to be strapped to the beds um, if their hospital doesn't have telemonitors. Now, if you are someone getting an induction or is required to have continuous monitoring, 
your place of service may have telemonitors and hopefully they work, but there's, you know, there's ups and downs of those too, because just like continuous monitoring, the more you're moving around, the more likely they are to lose the baby's heartbeat and then have to come in and adjust and change and da 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 and right, so, so you end up being still anyways because somebody keeps coming in and moving the thing because your baby actually is like participating. <laughs> right, so mobility is, is a big piece here, even right, those telemonitors where it is continuous fetal monitoring, but it's like mobile so you can be walking around. But, um, right, if it keeps slipping and they're not getting the heart rate, then you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't move. And, well, you needed the movement to navigate the sensations to help you, quote, manage the pain, right? Movement helps, but it helps the baby move down and figure out its way through the birth canal. Um, so, yeah, those go hand in hand. It gets tricky. Um, but, again, we're talking about healthy, straightforward, you know, physiological birth here. Um, and those just generally do not need continuous fetal monitoring, right? Or so, even 20 minutes every 60 minutes. That's a lot, right. <laughs> a lot of monitoring. Right. So you can- that Undermining again of somebody coming in and then having to adjust and connect you to your frontal cortex of like, okay, now we have to do this and this is what you have to do. And yeah, that's yeah, what's required. Yeah. I've seen some amazing nurses where, you know, the, the mom's like, like, I'm only letting you check for like 10 minutes, once an hour or something like the, the mom tells them what they're allowed to do. Cause that's wink, wink. What I really hope you can be inspired to do if that feels right to you. Just like you claim your power and you're the boss of that whole, whole show. So, but anyways, I've seen these nurses be really great at like the mom's like rocking and she's moving and the monitor keeps slipping. So the nurse is like, they're holding it. I've seen yeah. them do that for like a long time. Do and they'll like, like thank you. back and they'll like really yeah. participate. It's, it's, so yeah. it's not, again, like sometimes you get really lucky and you get a nurse that's like really, which is also why it's nice to show up with a plan or preferences because you're more likely to get a nurse that's like, okay, I'm game right? As opposed to the one that wants to sit and watch the people on an epidural. Right. Exactly. So, so mm -hmm. that's, that's, again, it's that signal that like, hey, I'm going to want somebody who's got some investment in my outcome as well. And yeah. not just paying up for their paycheck. Right. Not that that is, again, like, it's not, I'm not trying to be like a jerk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's there's just a difference right if you're on an epidural you're not moving as much and it's just like the monitors will stay in place and that's just one way not that needy and yeah it's just different and different people um can support different circumstances differently and and are more adept to those things right so that's that's it we you can't be there for everyone in all cases um I want to point out one more thing about the monitoring thing that it's not a hard, fast, super clear science um, as much as we would love to believe. And sometimes we think that, that these tests or interventions are like very straightforward, but they're not. They're, they help us get some information and then how we interpret it is, well, it's an interpretation, right? So just we don't always know what it means. 
they've done some studies where they gave the same fetal tracing to a few different doctors and there was very large uh, differences in how they would interpret them right and some are like oh yeah that baby's fine and some are like oh my gosh we need to crash c-section now right ah um, and context matters too like are we seeing the heart rate go down and the baby's really low or are we seeing it go down the baby's really high and actually maybe it's early labor. I mean, right, context matters, it's all different, but I just, just want you to keep that in mind as well, that um, they are doing their best at interpreting what they're seeing, but that's not always just the ultimate reality of what's going on. Um, there's different yeah. ways of perceiving it. So if they're like, your baby's doing terribly, but somehow, you know, deep in your gut, like, we're so good though. Like I've had people in that situation, the doctors are like, I'm afraid your baby's gonna die. And they're like, I know my baby's good. Like, um, get out please, because we're good. We're laboring, like my baby's healthy and I'm healthy and we're good. In the face of the doctors being like, the heart rate's awful. So, you know, there's room for that, for the authority of you and your intuition over what the doctors think that they're seeing on the monitor, right? So, yeah. So and actually, I wanna skip a little bit. I wanna to go to the one after the next one because we're talking about movement and the intermittent monitoring and the, so, you know, one of the things that's on the list is I strongly feel I should have total freedom of, of movement and change positions whenever I want through labor and pushing. And um, we'll go back to the one before it in just a moment. But that's, that's something that I think is um, really important and that actually can be achieved on some level, even if a woman chooses an epidural or for some reason needs an epidural, right? Why would someone need an epidural? Sometimes if people have crazy blood pressure, they need an epidural and it helps bring it down like dramatically. So I just want to like say that that is something that could come into play where the mother and baby would benefit from it because it controls the blood pressure. Um, so it's again, like not to polarize, there are reasons and rationales around some of these suggestions and interventions um, that people don't necessarily know. Um, it's also why when someone has a really low blood pressure, if they get an epidural, it could really alter the course of the labor and end in a crash C-section. Um, so just because it's a big shift for the baby too. Um, <clears throat> So anyways, so the, the freedom of movement and the ability to, to push and move however you want, and that there's something about that because if you are having a natural labor and if you are getting intermittent monitoring by and large, you can mostly achieve these things. You can go in and out of the shower or the bathtub or you know, whatever you feel like doing. And when you're pushing, you can rotate around a lot easier and move around. And if you are on an epidural, you really have to rely on either your partner or your doula or your nurse to help rotate you around. Um, but it's possible you can lay on your left, you can lay on your right. You definitely wanna make sure you're not laying with your back in a C, otherwise you're gonna end up with a baby that's OP. And so you really wanna keep your back straight. You may wanna like 
sit in child's pose on your flat bed. And all those things can happen even when you're on an epidural. So it's really important to know that like you, and, and then they can have a squat bar. You can get a walking epidural, which doesn't mean that you walk, but you have, you can move your legs without someone else moving them. You don't have complete dead leg, but again, typically working with people who are choosing a birth that doesn't involve medications, you know, get on the floor if you want to get on the floor and they'll try to get you back on the bed. And there's some of the things are like, well, we have to make sure you're 10 centimeters or we have to make sure you're having an effective push. So they've got their hands in while you're pushing to see if the baby moves and things like that, you know, but just to know that you really can, like, if you want to hang on to the countertop and squat and push that way, or if you want to sway, or if you want to sit backwards on the toilet, or if, you know, that's the toilet's the best place for you, because it's the cave that you don't have a million people coming in and out and you can, there's only one light and there's, you know, <laughs> so just knowing that like that movement is how you and your baby have your body language conversation about their emergence and what serves them best. And so, you know, in along the lines of the epidural doesn't affect the baby, but it does, it really does because that disconnection is makes it diff more difficult for you to move in the ways that your baby needs in order to navigate that space. Or you may not feel these certain things. So someone has to tell you when you're having a contraction or when this, that, or the other, so. So um, you're on mute. Ha, ah, I was talking on mute. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, yeah, something about the nuances of movement and, and being able to feel the details of where the body is asking you to push or how to angle yourself and, and when to push a little more, when to push a little less and, or just how to move. And, and, you know, it can help with uh, moving the intense energy pain of labor of the contractions, um, which we said in the romanticizing birth episode, that doesn't mean that oh, if I get to move in labor, it's going to feel comfortable. No, that's not what I mean. I just mean it's going to feel likely better um, than if you have to stay put and just like holding on to the tension because there's that cycle of tension and pain, more tension equals more pain. Um, so it can be worse. So um, if you're moving it and when you're moving, you can kind of be softer. You kind of have to be softer, right? Because you can't be tense and be mobile. You soften up and things become, uh, I don't want to say easier, but it, it helps. It helps to move that energy around. So we've got so many things to run through on this thing, but it's awesome. I'm loving it. So the next one is cervical checks. Let's see as few cervical checks as possible by as few staff as possible. I prefer mineral oil or oil I provide as opposed to sterile lube. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much in this one. Okay. This could be its own episode. Uh, so we'll start with cervical checks, um, which have become incredibly routine. Um, I mean, you show up to the hospital, that's one of the first things they'll do because they need to know where you're at, right? Should we admit you or should we send you home? Are you in labor? Are you in active labor? 
Um, Should I call my assistant as your home birth provider or should I wait or should I go home myself? Exactly. Crossing platforms because some of these things are really hospital-based, but some of them totally work in the home birth realm too. They do. Yeah, right. Um, So thank you for that reminder. Uh, So, okay. Yeah, great. So there's that first one. But then we know that the cervical checks tells you where that person is in that moment. It does not tell you what's ahead. It doesn't tell you how quickly they'll get to the next stage, to the next centimeter, how quick or how long the rest of the labor will be. It's just where they are now. Sometimes it can be super helpful in a long labor right? It's always circumstantial. This ain't an always or never thing, but sometimes like, well, it has been a long time. And for whatever reasons, let's check. Um, it's like, oh, okay. Well, you've been at the same thing for centimeter dilation for 12 hours. You know, that's like a, one, something where it might be super helpful. Sure. Um, but otherwise routine checking of the cervix, like every four hours, just because Um, can be problematic. It's very clear in the research that it does increase the chance of infection. Um, And this is something that I've seen um, hospital staff and and like most people are up to date on this. They still want to (laughs) do vaginal exams, but they also understand that it does increase the chance of infection. So they mention it at least. I've seen that often. So that's nice. And that's important for you to keep in mind. And that's a big truck passing by. Okay. Um, regardless of whether the bag, your amniotic sac is intact or not. I mean, certainly if it's open, it it's even more of an increased chance, um, a risk of infection. But even if it's intact, still, you know, the fact that there are fingers going up there, pushing bacteria up there. Um, and then we can get into the serolube part. Uh, Jamie, if you want, just about how that changes the microbiome of the vaginal canal, just having uh, gloved fingers going up there, um, especially with added minerals and multiple times. Um, And before you jump into that part, I want to talk about the energetic part of that too. Like, women, this is like people sticking fingers inside of us. Like, don't usually just you know, let anyone do that, right? That's not just like a casual thing, right? Um, that happened, that's a very intimate thing in one way or another, like, right? Whenever fingers are going in there, it's an intimate thing. So sometimes a vaginal exam can be approached like it's no big deal, but it is a big deal to the person getting the fingers put inside of them, right? I mean, even going to like the gynecologist, not in labor, you're just like going in for a check, like, Oh, it's a big deal. Well, into the gyno, it's they do it all day to several people, so it's almost like they're not desensitized. Some are wonderfully sensitized and totally aware, and and then you get the folks that just really aren't. Again, that are just like this is routine, this is routine, this is routine, as opposed to like this routine is attached to a whole being. <laughs> exactly, right. And so, this is a different being than the one next door or whatnot. Yeah, so so just 
recognize that you don't have to accept all the checks all the time just because they're offering it you can be like no i'm not ready for that right now uh you know we'll can say uh, maybe in a little bit later on just not now or you well, can be aware of the time because if you get checked and then now it's going to be a shift change and someone else is going to be taking care of you for the next 12 hours then maybe you just wait until the shift change because everybody checks everybody's checks are different and energetically how they check is different right and there's so studies on that too that you know, same dilation, dilation, different providers will determine them as a different station, uh, dilation. And so it's not a perfect science, you know, yes, they have experience checking and they will do their best to guess how open their fingers are with your cervix. But ultimately the same dilation can be read a little differently from person to person. That's just what the research has shown. They've well, looked into you're it. Trying to compare where you were and where you are. And if it is minimal change, but it's changed, person A can't necessarily determine that from person B. And person A may be sweeter, softer, gentler, have longer fingers, or be more delicate, and person B may be a little more energetically um, pressured and um, so that check might not be as soft or stretchy of a cervix it might be a tight cervix it might be a like a, a woman retracting and or it might even have dynamics to it where i think that again i feel like the medical world is starting to recognize that the cervix is dynamic it opens and closes depending on um how that woman feels um we're not different than any other mammal though i don't know if we're checking other mammals cervixes to change the, to see this difference but we can kind of assume on some level that that you know we are that if we see it in women then it's very likely that we see it in other animals and um and i have definitely seen people jump off the bed getting cervical exams. And I have seen other people be able to just that same person be able to melt into it, depending on the energy that the person is bringing forth and into their sacred space, into, into their, as Auntie Medra would say, their altar. <laughs> yeah, Yoni has the altar. So please. As such. <laughs> so please tell us how using Sarah Loop can not be the best way to honor the altar of the microbiome in the vagina. Yeah, and I, you know, and touching a little bit on the, the thought of the increased risk of infection, which is why they use sterile lube. And if you have, you know, ruptured waters or your waters have released, you know, then maybe sterile lube is the answer, but it's also the answer to do fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer exams. Um, because the risk of infection is inherently higher if your waters have released. So sterile lube, they have done plenty of studies now. The microbiome is, is kind of all the, um, guess what? Science evolves, folks. <laughs> and so we thought we were just mammals, but really we are, you know, tens of billions of different genetics of 25,000 plus microbes and bacterias and 
fungi and all these other things, we are a living ecosystem. And so they've done these studies now that measures the women's vaginal microbiome. And there've been small studies, but they're starting to collect this information that at 36 weeks, it's diverse. And then when they get admitted into the hospital, it's less. And then the longer the labor is, that her and that her the woman's vaginal microbiome so they do they do it at four spots they do it at 36 weeks upon admittance to the hospital they do it um in in transition and then they were they were doing it postpartum and they were finding that the longer women are in the hospital the less and less and less um, vaginal bacterial diversity was present and they are attributing it largely to putting in sterile antimicrobial antibacterial lube into a woman's vaginal canal. And so that matters because upon entrance into the world is when our gut flora is most um, privy to being influenced and and being populated by either beneficial bacterias, the bacterias that are present in um, the vaginal canal and how that populates the baby's gut and then what the baby eats after so that all that population and all that bacteria and how it's fed through breast milk or through other means. And so the microbiome is, is a fascinating and wonderful discovery that I think we all maybe knew was there, but it's, you know, we got to have science to prove it. And so, <laughs> and it goes into a lot of things as far as mental health, physical health and wellness and the long-term effects. And, um, and so basically if when you're born, the mother's getting routine vaginal sterile lube checks every two hours over the course of 48 hours, that that baby will then be introduced through that either vaginal bacteria or through a, a surgical birth. And then instead of being populated by this large diverse bits of bacteria, it's, it's limited. And so the opportunistic bacterias that grow in places like hospitals and on instruments and sterile environments they have the opportunity to come in as well and populate the gut and the health and, and really kind of suppress these other potentially beneficial, potentially um, pathological bacteria that naturally occur. And so the balance is shifted. And so that's why we're seeing they're just, you know, discovering these changes in um in our long-term health and they're trying to get to the root of why is this and it can be as simple as a multiple sterile lube vaginal exams so if your waters are not broken um or released then i would definitely say that if there has to be any exams that that using no lube or using something more inert like olive oil or coconut oil. Hospitals usually have mineral oil um, for deliveries, which that I don't quite understand why, because it's a drying oil, but nevertheless, it is probably more beneficial to use that than to use the lube. 
And that's my soapbox. You guys can go explore the microbiome. It's fascinating. Yeah. So wrap up with that one. It's not a case against vaginal exams. It's not always or never. It's just, it's not no big deal either. So, you know, choose wisely. It Give it thought whenever it's presented and they're not needed as often as they want to do them too. Right. It goes back to the whole, is this labor taking too long thing? Like, well, is it based on what? Do we need to check because you think it's taking too long because you want to go home? I don't know. Okay. Well, and time is elusive in labor. Time (laughs) is elusive at the end of pregnancy. Women are in their 40th week and they feel like they're going to be pregnant for the next 45 years. (laughs) And then they have a baby and, you know, and then time is really slow, but then they're like, oh my gosh, it's been two months since this baby's been out of me. You know, labor is the same way and time flies when you're having fun, all these cliche things like come from a reality that like time is really as elusive as the time is spent. Mm-hmm. Right. So thinking that like, oh, you've been in labor forever. And maybe even women who have shorter labors, maybe their labors are eight hours or something. They still sometimes feel like they're in that space of foreverness that they're not going to ever be on the other side of this birth. Um, and then there they are two months postpartum thinking, remembering how they thought they would never going to be on the other side of that birth. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. So. Mm-hmm. so the next point, I think we got a couple more here about the labor part itself. So this one says, I would like to allow for the cord to stop pulsing before clamping and cutting, which reminds me from our previous episode, we have yet to do one about the placenta birth. Mm-hmm. So so we'll touch on this a bit and then we'll have another episode eventually where we'll go even deeper. Um, but right. So for a long time, the standard um, in medical practices has been cut the cord immediately. Like we do delayed cord clamping now though, right? But right now there's been some pushback and some research that, okay, maybe you don't have to cut right away. And actually it can be beneficial for the baby to uh, leave the cord intact for a while after the birth. So right now it's a little more common to have the option of delayed cord clamping in the hospitals, which, (laughs) but to right delayed to them means a minute and maybe two, three minutes tops. It depends on who you're working with, right? That's why I talk to your providers, ask them questions. What does that mean to them? How long are they comfortable leaving it intact? Um, but if they tell you delayed core clamping, know that it's usually on the shorter end still. Yeah, they still um, mean 60 to 90 seconds. <laughs> right, right. Which we go back Maybe to what I just read there, right? The cord is still pulsing. I, I mean, I'm not always feeling cords at births, um, but generally the cords are not really done pulsing at a minute even three three would be rare um but i made a video about this before like i've seen them be like look touch the cord it's done pulsing and then the people touch the cord and they're like oh okay yeah but i'm like we're at a minute there's no way it's done pulsing so i'm not sure how they're getting that it's full of color right you can see the blood in it Yeah. Right. So, so for about what does delayed cord clamping really mean? 
And they also try to sell this idea of blood banking and that you're going to save all these lives by blood cord blood banking. And so we can delay for one minute and then you can donate all your baby's blood to someone else. Right. Or even if you're going to be one of those folks that thinks it for themselves, well, if that blood is so beneficial and might help your baby down the road with some unprecedented health issue, well, if it's so beneficial, why not just give it to the baby right now for free? Because this is when they're trying to survive. (laughs) And all the research and studies that show that they're less likely to have anemia and they're less likely to have low birth weight or slow growth and all these other things, this big... Uh, Sorry, I'm laughing over here because it's like, wait, if you give the baby blood, it's going to have less anemia? (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> it's like really you needed research to figure that one out guys come on blood transfusions isn't that what yeah right so you know i mean if you choose to bank the blood it's not it's it's great it's great if that's what is your truth but at the same time recognize who you're taking the blood away from yeah so right why do delayed cord clamping is because that's just the way nature was intended to be. First of all, that's just the way the design is. Um, We now do also have a plethora of research that you can dive into and bust out to your care provider if they're not on the same page to show them like it's beneficial for all these reasons for the baby to have all its blood because that's what happens, right? You leave the cord intact and the baby can receive all the blood that it's intended to receive and they're sometimes concerned well the baby's going to get too much blood but it's not just the one way the you know baby sending out some blood too so like trust the design collecting it's still a two-way street there's pumping in and pumping out that's happened right so they used to think it created jaundice but that was when they were milking cords and essentially pushing blood into babies but you're pushing also the used blood back into the baby Mm -hmm. so um that has kind of been debunked at this point as well like milking a cord doesn't actually it's not it's not beneficial either you're not don't push the old used blood back into the baby it's a two-way street Mm -hmm. and you can't sit there and only push one side <laughs> it's right, of it's a spiral <laughs> exactly so, and there's also a release mechanism you know like that blood exchanging and those vessels and those um where it adheres to mother's uterus right like those things start clamping and stopping the exchange and so as the demand is less and less and less so again rushing that part is kind of detrimental or could potentially cause more bleeding for the mother because we're hurrying through this process that naturally the it will unless you have placenta accreta you know which is a very rare occurrence this your your body has this exchange of its time to be done with this organ the baby is out and we will slowly close these vessels and release this placenta Mm -hmm. which leads to the next thing about not only wait for the cord to stop pulsing but to allow the placenta to deliver spontaneously and to not 
just pull it out. Now that's different than some, every now and again, a little traction can help support. Sometimes women don't like the feeling of it sitting right there and because they just pushed a baby out. So they may not want to put like that feeling of the vagina opening back open and dispelling another thing, you know, but if we can get a woman into a better position, a lot of times if she's in a position that she birthed the baby, the placenta wants to follow that same pathway. Um, and also not interrupting when the baby between when the baby comes out and when the placenta, just really letting them have their moment and not trying to suture someone at that time or something else interfering with that mother-baby connection, then the body will expel the placenta and the bleeding will not, you won't have major blood clots as much. You won't have major bleeding issues as much because the body does its natural detachment in the time that it takes to do those things. Yeah. So remember that this is a bigger picture. Yeah. Right. It's not interrupting that just like we, there's conversations about undisturbed birth. There needs to be conversations about undisturbed placenta birth and the time in between baby out and placenta out because there's still a very delicate and wisely designed cascade of hormones dancing together there to make that all happen smoothly too that can be interrupted and also again that energetic part the the mental psychologic part for the mother right because birth is so much more about that than the physical or you can say that the psychological is in fact what informs the physical things to happen so if she doesn't feel safe because well you cut and clamp the cord right away and you took the baby away maybe not so necessarily necessarily okay fine sure but you know or maybe if it is necessary it's still a huge shock for the mother system to be like oh my gosh my baby's not here or for whatever reason she feels afraid now um or not safe not coming out. your placenta is not coming out two minutes well, after right the birth there is gonna make people be like what something's wrong something's wrong yeah just energy in the room shifting and how much that really happens even again at home births like the baby comes out and suddenly everybody's chattering and blah, 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 you know and it's like just everybody just put your feet on the ground all right exactly. <laughs> we're not done here take a deep breath for this new life there's yeah. not you don't need to just start running around like chickens with our head cut off Right. So there's the part about the providers, but the part of the, the woman who's birthed and the family too, just people there, you, you know, sometimes it's forgotten that the placenta is part of this too. Like, obviously it's all about the baby. The baby's what you keep the placenta, you know, you don't necessarily keep by and large. <laughs> it's, it's fine, but you're not done. The body's not done. There's still this important piece left to it. So yeah, sometimes it's like, get on the phone, call people, let's show them the baby. And it's like, we're not done with the birth actually um so you yeah. can throw things off um so the placenta you know i'm gonna ponder out loud here i don't know if there's research on this there might be i think i heard this somewhere but imagine okay you cut and clamp the cord right away as soon as the baby comes out and then all that blood they estimate on average about a third of the blood that baby could have gotten is you know, still in the placenta and the cord. So that's a decent amount of blood. 
it's still in there and it's got nowhere to go, right? You've closed off the vessel highway. So now the woman's got to push out this placenta that's full of blood, more blood than it would have been otherwise if it was able to, because when she pushes it out, then the blood would be able to like move through the vessels, right? But now I can't do that. So I just wonder like, is that making things harder? Is that filling up the uterus more? Is that leading to any complications? Maybe, maybe not. But these are the kind of things that you need to wonder when we're intervening in the natural design of things, right? Like how might we be affecting our, uh, the natural flow? Well, and to be humble about what you don't know, you know, you like know. that. Yeah. It is, is pulling a placenta out preventing hemorrhage or is it causing more uterine infections? Is it causing more hemorrhaging? Is it causing women to need hysterectomies? Is it causing, you know, are we, are Prolapse. we, yeah. Are we inverting uteruses? Are we prolapsing them? You know, so, um, you know, and there is some research, but there's not a lot of research around these things that, and cause a lot of birth practice is not evidence-based. <laughs> there's a lot of experimentation going on, but there's not a lot of true informed choice and, and true evidence-based practices. So, um, and that's why, you know, we just have to question these things. Like why, why do these things come up and why do people choose them? Why do people not choose them? Why is this routine? Who does it serve? And why does it serve them and not the opposing? Is everybody benefit from it or does one side benefit from it? Or one of three sides, right? Because it's a triad, you know, there is something about that last connection of the mother to her placenta, to her baby as well. That whole triad of, you know, this is okay. The body has released the baby. Now the body needs to take the time to release this organ that has been sustaining this baby's life and, and the mother's life. Cause that is that, that threshold, right? If the placenta comes off the wall, the mother could also bleed out. The baby could die and the mother could bleed out at the same time, right? So like that connection and honoring that as opposed to being like, oh, you don't need it anymore. Here we go. We'll just yank it out of there and do. So. Well, back yeah. to the Heplock thing and how those are planting seeds of doubt and just undermining the process and this woman's ability. Uh, there's a general lack of trust in birth and woman in general, right? So we see it at play here again with this um, note of, please do not administer routine Pitocin drip after birth. I would prefer the one-time injection or, and only if clinically indicated. Okay, so just the first part of that, please do not administer routine Pitocin drip after birth. In many places, that's routine. You, baby's out, you, you're getting Pitocin so that you don't bleed out because the it's coming from a place of like, you're likely going to bleed out. So we're just going to do it to prevent it because... I mean, how can we possibly out? So you're probably gonna bleed out. <laughs> well, exactly. Like you said, are they see so many hemorrhages and they really believe that that routine Pitocin drip for everyone is what's best. So what, how have they gotten to that place? Because what we see in in generally physiological undisturbed birth is most people aren't bleeding out uncontrollably. Like 
most people are fine. So that's not what they're seeing in a medical context or wherever they're doing this Pitocin routinely to prevent hemorrhage. So, you know, it's understandable if you really see most people bleed, then sure, you're going to want to prevent that. But why are most people bleeding? So I was in a, um, like a short example was like, right, they were offering, I don't know if they were offering the routine drip or like they were just about to do it or something. And then I kind of point out like, oh, actually, like, mom, you don't want that routinely right now, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, well, why are you doing that? And the nurse is like, well, it's just so you don't bleed. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, you don't know. I think the mom asked me, should I do it? And I was like, well, you don't know if you're going to bleed. Um, so it's good to know it's there. And if you do bleed, then they can use it. But you don't know if you're going to bleed, you know, so he just ended up saying, okay, yeah, right. Well, I don't want it preventatively. Just if I do need it, then we'll do it. Right. Um, but, but that's kind of a little situation of they want to do it routinely for also everyone to avoid on it. How that provider translates. Well, well, you are bleeding. Well, obviously you're bleeding because all women bleed after birth. Right. And the other piece of that is that as a routine, what does that do to our hormone receptors, right? Because we also know that if women are getting induced with Pitocin, that if they hemorrhage postpartum, Pitocin is not gonna be the answer to get them to stop bleeding. Um, and because those receptors, so we know this, and this is common knowledge in obstetrics. And so the question then arises is, well, then why do we, why do we flood those receptors immediately postpartum and what does that do for the long-term effects of hormones? Because we also know that if people do things like recreational drugs, such as, um, uh, what is it? Um, like ecstasy. Molly and stuff. Yep. Right. Ecstasy and Molly and that they have really hard, hard come downs because they're so flooded that their body has a very difficult time for a, a, a bit of, you know, for a window of bringing those levels back up to normal because they've been so depleted or they've been so flooded. And this is the same, this is the love hormone. This is a very exactly. delicate, and that and that love hormone can, can make you fall in love and it can also make you incredibly anxious because you would do anything because you love this person. We have high, high, high prevalence of postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, all these things. And part of it is um, possibly because we just don't honor and respect this time in our life, but it also could have something to do with the fact that we are flooding women with artificial love hormone and then expecting their body to just deal with it or that there is, they, that there is no side effect that it's right. just to prevent bleeding. Yet we also know that most midwives carry a one IM, a, 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 a little drip, a one ML intramuscular um, Pitocin to prevent bleeding. And they use it only as indicated if a woman is actually hemorrhaging. Um, now, some midwives may do routine drips nowadays if they're very clinically and medically um, aligned, which more and more and more midwives are. Um, 
but otherwise they're a little more reserved and they only give this one ml um, shot. So, so again, when, if you, when you have that saline lock in there, <laughs> that's part of the routine is they will put this ginormous bag of Pitocin in just to prevent you from bleeding. And again, going back to the evidence-based birth practices around this is that yes, it does prevent bleeding at the time, but what they are starting to maybe discover if you listen to that podcast about that is that they're finding that more women are bleeding three to five days postpartum. So once they're out of hospital care, they're at home, their partners are back at work, maybe they're tending to their toddlers or their whatever, doing grocery store runs and what, and they're more likely to bleed at that time. So is it preventing it or is it just prolonging it to a time when women are not in a place where they're being overseen? Mm-hmm. And if you're in a hospital, why is it necessary to do a routine Pitocin drip just in case if the whole, if they're constantly coming in there, monitoring you every one to two hours anyway, <laughs> Right. And you already know where the call button is. Mm-hmm. Right. They're really so, good at getting questions. in the room often. Yeah. Wow. So, and there's other options around that. So if Pitocin is not going to work, what are the other options? Misoprostol is something that is, again, off-label use in obstetrics. Um, it's an ulcer medication, but it can prevent bleeding as well. So. And it's very effective. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about that before and to connect the dots a little bit more for people, right? Uh, Pitocin is synthetic oxytocin, right? That's the name of the, uh, the natural original biological hormone in our systems known as the cuddle hormone, the love hormone. Um, and in some places they will call Pitocin oxytocin, which I think is like, how is that even legal? That's not true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, you know, they might just call it oxytocin, but that's what it is. It's a synthetic version of the hormone our body makes, which, yeah, I can only again, ponder like, well, if you're flooding the body with that hormone from the outside, is it sending the message to the body? Like, well, we don't need to make any more of it. It's right there. There's already enough of it. It's coming from the outside. And then as it wears off, then the body might need a while to kind of reamp its own production of the hormone. Or is also maybe something going on with the binding of the hormones and that kind of maybe um, getting stuck to the receptors and not allowing the natural oxytocin to come in and bind and do its job, you know, we don't know. So when it's needed, it's great to have that tool available, but it's not no big deal enough to just like give it to everybody because most people aren't going to need it. And then you're causing problems instead of solving them. Exactly. The unintended consequences of um, trying to do good, but not every, you know, blankets don't work. Humans are into it. I mean, blankets yeah. work cold, but. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, for yeah. major interventions. 
Yeah. Well, and when we're talking about, yes, like medications, and again, that goes back to that whole conversation about microbiome and all that, you know, we're all genetically made up differently with a million different other genetics in us. And so some people, even some people, epidurals don't work for, you know, like, I'm just saying that, like, there's Mm -hmm. not something for absolutely everyone. There's other than just being born. We've all been born. We're all going to die. That's pretty much the only thing that we all have in common. (laughs) Well, I mean, we breathe, we, you know, but basically, you know, these biological functions, but anyhow. Yeah. So that moves us on to the next one because I realized this is a long list. I'm wondering if we should, because the other ones are kind of about about baby and yes, immediate postpartum. Yeah, Um, we can wait. I think we we can wait on this. Mm -hmm. We've been talking for a long time. It has been, and I don't want to rush the next part. And I bet people would turn us off anyways. It'd be like, I've been listening to them too long. Like, I'm already. And yeah, so to make it digestible, we'll um, split it into uh, two parts. Part two coming up. Yeah. Alrighty. And we will talk about placenta birth as well. (laughs) There's always more to say about the placenta birth, and it deserves its own episode to have its own glory and attention, and maybe multiple episodes. So don't worry, we will talk more of it. Uh, cool. Well, I loved today and I would love to hear from people because we covered a lot of ground and just so many potential situations and options and perspectives. And it'd be cool to have an ongoing conversation with people listening, maybe your experiences or perspectives or wisdom you want to share with people. So reach out to us. You can email us at womanonfirepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and and then we can talk there if you want to be a guest or got questions etc yeah comments we're open we're open all right thanks for sticking around (laughs) with us so long today for this wild adventure we were all over the place but uh thank you for caring about this kind of stuff yeah thanks for stay stay curious yeah right on and aloha aloha